0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Peter K. Anderson, author of the book Fool, in search of Henry VIII's closest man. Peter, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you very much. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Uh, sure.
1: I'm uh, a senior lecturer in history based at uh, Orobru University in Sweden. Um, I live and work in, in Sweden, but uh, I've spent uh, almost all my uh, career as a historian uh, studying uh, British history, and I've mainly uh, worked on the Victorian period. But uh, now with the, with the book that we're going to t- talk about, I've uh, changed focus and I'm moving into the renaissance of the early modern period
0: that that shift in focus is one of the things that I thought was absolutely fascinating about your book what led you to focus upon this man of the 16th century and 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 what led you to undertake this incredibly challenging effort to write a biography about it? um i've always been interested in in
1: this kind of people you know the the, the outsiders of history the 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 little people to use a bad term really um individuals who are marginalized or who live quite a humble humble life or who in some way uh happen to stumble into the corridors of power as in this case um will will summer who my book is about um, was a humble individual from a humble background but he happened to become court fool and the cherished fool of Henry VIII. And 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 he, he sort of uh, illustrates how history can sometimes um, affect uh, ordinary people in, in strange ways. And I think by looking at a man like him, uh, I've looked at other people in, in the past of the same type, um, we can see uh, the past uh, through different Uh, different eyes, and we can perhaps um, acquire a a bit more of um, recognition when when we study history.
0: And and that gets to part of the adventure, I thought, uh, of of your book in terms of reading it, which was how you lay out the detective process, if you will, of trying to uncover this ordinary person, a person uh, for whom we have... Nothing in his own words directly. Uh, we have, uh, you know, no uh, real, you know, you know, contemporary biography of him or anything like that. And, and and your book, as much as it describes his life and times, is about the process of discovering who he is. And I was wondering if you could begin explaining that to us by talking about the legacy that he left for his contemporaries, because you begin. As you describe in your book, you're, you're approaching him by a, by a series of by kind of going in through a series of concentric circles. If you could explain a bit how the immediate rec, the the immediate uh, literary record he left the immediate shall we say imprint that he left and and what this reveals about who he was and 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 why he matters.
1: Yes, um, well, well, the thing is that Will Will Summer, or Will Summers, as he was called after his death, was a very famous person um in shakespeare's time in in the late 16th early 17th century and he was famous as a sort of legendary comedian he was um he was invoked whenever comic writers uh, wanted to sort of summon the spirits of of the the big humorists of the past uh and then uh, you you sort of mentioned the name of will summers the henry the fool and and he was he was famous uh, for, for being um, a funny guy um but this is this it was a myth that that uh, evolved after his death quite quickly after his death, I think. Um, and this myth I think has very much affected how people have written about him since then. Even in in modern uh, research, he is sometimes described um, as this sort of legendary comic. Uh, but I wanted to 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 go, into who who he really was, and to try and find sources from his own time, um, which there aren't that much of. Um, so, the the sort of the the biography of him becomes also the process of writing about him, uh, and the process of discovery uh, who who this man really was, uh, and how his his own surroundings uh, viewed him, so to speak. So, I I try to sort of gradually peel off um, layers. Uh, layer by layer, um, beginning in this posthumous myth, which is very well documented, and you can find it in in the works of Shakespeare and uh, Thomas Nash and Samuel Rowley and so on. Uh, but then, if, as you gradually move back backwards in time, um, you see that this myth doesn't have that much to do with with the reality. And in fact, he was probably quite a different man um, who lived. Quite a different life from the one uh, that the myth holds. So, um, so that sort of process, um, moving from the posthumous myth into the to the real person, um, I thought was very much part
0: of uh, an important part of of uh, presenting who he was. Really, you also present him in the context of his role at court, and so you have a chapter where you describe him as part of this category of people at court that were there in the you know in that period which were fools. Could you perhaps explain a bit you know, who the fools were? Because now the word has a certain connotation today that is similar but not the same as it was back then. Who were the fools at these courts and and, and what uh, purpose did they play and, and, and how maybe do we misunderstand those people in in modern times um the 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 court fool or the fool in general was i mean you
1: fools could be um a large quite quite a sort of heterogeneous category of people really um people who were deemed um disabled intellectually disabled in in the sort of early modern definition of of how um medical definitions and and legal definitions of, of these things and so on but then there were household fools and court fools. I mean, not all fools were employed by by kings or monarchs. Some some fools were employed by by just uh, prominent individuals or aristocrats. Uh, Thomas More had a fool, for instance. Um, and and it, it was quite a sort of a vogue for employing fools, uh, especially in the 16th century and in the time of the Renaissance. Um, and you could speak about two kinds of fools uh, when you when you spoke, spoke about um, professional fools. Um, there were natural fools and there were artificial fools. The artificial fools were people who were, you know, comedians, p- people who were skilled at making jokes, uh, making wry comments um, at dinner parties and so on. Uh, these types of fools probably weren't that common uh, if we go back to the uh 15th 16th century um what was more common then was probably the other category the natural fool which was um, basically a person mostly with an what we would nowadays call an intellectual disability who was employed as a fool because of that and because um people found his uh demeanor his behavior and the way he spoke um both amusing but also um, in a way, symbolic, maybe with a sort of hidden meaning, something like that. Um, so, so these people were cherished in a way, and um, and and they 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 were they were employed, but they were also sort of kept. They were they were treated as something in between a human and, and a pet, you might say. Um, and and uh, so sometimes you can you can find traces of them being quite maltreated and quite viciously treated. For instance, it, it was generally generally uh, seen that that uh, you should um, chastise them in the way you did with way with children. So so the the lot of the uh, Renaissance fool was not an easy one, we might say, and um, and it wasn't really the the sort of uh, Shakespearean fool that you see in in a place from that era. The the uh, smart um, wry comics who have what some people call the fool's license, you know, the, the way fools could sort of speak the truth to the king and and uh, say things that other people weren't allowed to say and so on. It wasn't really like that. It, it, that's more of a myth that sort of emerges later on, especially in, in, uh, in fiction.
0: That was another uh, dimension of your book that for me was really illuminating, which was how we're seeing just not just this role, but we're seeing these attitudes towards disability, where you have these people who, by virtue of their disability, have this very special place in uh, the, the presence of, of, of the halls of power, and yet there's no tolerance. And I, I mean, we we describe uh, 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 you know uh, disciplining. You're you're not talking about you know sending them to their room without supper here. I mean, you, you describe mm-hmm. in there how. Will Summer and others are 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 beaten and yeah. and 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 physically punished for something that you uh, we don't we don't know necessarily what they were punished for, but given the the fact that they did possess uh, disabilities or were differently abled, was not exactly something that we could expect that was under their control.
1: No, exactly. I mean, uh, it, it, it's. I, I mean, of course, we we react when we when we read about how they were treated in this period, uh, and and. The sort of the general idea of, 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 of the attitude towards disability in this period is, is something that we, we think is, is horrible, obviously. Um, John Haywood, who was a contemporary of, of Will Summer, uh, describes the lot of the, of the fool in, in one of his plays. And he has a famous uh, list that one of his characters say. Uh, some beat him, some fob him, some joll him, some job him, some tug him by the arse, some lug him by the ears, some spit at him, some spurn him, some toss him, some turn him. It's a very long sort of list, um, which ends with with uh, not even uh, Will Summer, the king's own fool, can can avoid uh, this sort of punishment. So, um, so yeah, that, that that was probably very much how it was. But then when you when you go through uh, his life. Um, and and when, when you compare it to, to to other fools in the same period, you see that there were there was also a different side to it. There was also a lot of compassion and, and sympathy. Um, courtiers and uh, and diplomats refer to Will Summer in their letters and and uh, are concerned for his well-being. Um, there are tales of Will Summer had a having a, a tendency to fall asleep in odd places and. Courtiers or sermons would come up and put a pillow under his head, things like that. So, so, so it was quite a complex relationship towards this. Um, it it it's, it was intolerant in in a way, of course, but but it was also um, there. There were there were other dimensions to it, which which certainly doesn't sort of excuse the the chastisement and so on, but but uh, definitely makes it worthwhile to look more closely at this and and see any of you would sort
0: of uncover quite a complex um view uh, of these things i'd like to turn now to summer himself and your examination of his life uh in the book uh, could you start by talking a bit about his background uh from where did summer come and and how did he come to be at court um he first appears uh at court
1: sometime in in uh, the 1530s the, first records of him um in the court are from about that time um and we don't really know how he came to to be a court fool um there are tales that were told after his death about his origins uh one of the most credible is that he would have been employed by um a wealthy merchant called richard firmer who lived in northamptonshire at the at a large estate um, but this Richard Fermer was convicted of treason by, by Henry VIII. Uh, and at that point, Will Summer would uh, then presumably have been moved to court. Um, and also part of this story is that this Richard Fermer was eventually pardoned uh, on the king's deathbed through uh, the appeal uh, made by, by Will Summer. Um, so that meaning that that Will Summer would would in that case have been loyal to his Original master throughout his life, uh, and made him um, restored him uh, to his wealth uh, ultimately, but this is a story that is told uh, really a century and a half after Will Summer's death. Um, so, is it true or not? There are no other records of, of it, um, and it's very difficult to to see if if this is true. I mean, Richard Fermer did exist, and he he had a a, a manor in Northamptonshire and so on, but there are no records of, of him employing Will Summer. So it's quite difficult to, to, to get a, a sense of, of exactly where he came from. Um, we can see how other fools were recruited. Um, there, there, there was a lot of what you might call talent scouting going on when, when different courtiers or officials connected to the court were traveling around the country sometimes they would write letters back to the court saying oh we saw this uh, fool in this village and uh, he might be uh, suitable for uh, for employment at the court and so on so possibly this is also how how Will Summer came to be at court maybe maybe he was you know sort of discovered uh, by someone <laughs> and, and uh, taken to to the king um but but yeah it's it's, um, it's you can you can speculate a lot but but
0: basically we we know very little about his his background and that gets to something that you address in uh, some detail in your book which is his presence in the historical record and, and one of the things i enjoyed about your book is that it's a well illustrated book and that gets to something that really makes will summer very different from a, many other people people more famous more powerful than him which is that we have a visual record of him yeah. And, and, and and I thought it was fascinating the way that you glean out his presence in the records, you you find where he is, and how you can take these scraps of of, of information and combine it with the physical record to give us a, a, a sense of him that that we actually don't have for uh, uh, most people uh, who lived at that time. Exactly,
1: it's, it's quite interesting that that there are uh, several uh, contemporary portraits of him some are probably copies later copies of of works that would have been painted during his lifetime but it's it's quite uh, you you can actually get quite quite a clear image of how what he looked like and and he appears especially in uh, sort of dynastic family portraits of, of the family of, of of henry viii and, and his um, his children so uh, and and he, he regularly sort of stands somewhere in the background he, he he's not you know he's not your typical um funny comedian he he doesn't wear the cap and bells and things like that he he's standing in the background in the shadows quite a brooding figure uh, looking very serious um wearing dark clothes you, you wouldn't think that this is actually the the court fool you would think that this is some sort of a clergyman or something but but actually this is uh, what he looked like and and he he was he seems to have been it seems to have been very popular to include him in these types of portraits and maybe he was there as a sort of good luck charm as a sort of mascot of the of the tudor court because uh, it's it's strange to see how how often he he crops up um and of course this is interesting because i mean we have as you said we have noblemen and women whom there are no portraits um, preserved on so um so the relationship between these is is quite interesting i mean if we look internationally you can find quite a lot of uh, fool portraits um or portraits of court dwarfs and so on so i think that was a bit apart on the appeal of a fool or a court dwarf that they had a sort of visuality to them that that uh, people wanted to preserve or wanted to document in a way so maybe there was more of an incentive to uh make portraits of them than than there was of, of uh, other
0: people and this visible record you you uh you know, is part of these sources that you draw upon, including, say, uh, you know, records of say transportation, records of of, of uh, you know of of, of you know victualling, supplying, you know, and, and and how they, they give a sense as to a person who you know was very much you know present at court at, at, at a lot of times. I was trying to you could perhaps t- uh, talk a bit about what all of this reveals about. Will Summer at court and, and and the type of foolery that that in which he engaged because you, you explained you you know not all fools were equal and and some of them uh, were were noted more for certain things than others. Where did Summer fit in in, in that spectrum? Um,
1: yeah, I mean the the piecing together, you know, the the image of of who he was and what what he was like. You have to uh, try and and and. Uh, draw conclusions out of a very very fragmented picture i mean you can find his name in in all sorts of places but but there's never a very consistent record of of him or or of his life mostly you can find him in in the wardrobe accounts where um clothes are being ordered for him um you can find him in, in in the master of the rebels accounts you know where the the man who who was um um, responsible for, for entertainments and so on. But, but strangely, he's not that visible in records relating to entertainment. He's not listed together with musicians or minstrels or things like that in, in, the, in the court records. And that's quite interesting, I think, But because it, it sort of indicates that the fool was viewed as something else. The fool was not viewed as something especially um related to regular entertainment or music or or um just fooling around i mean the the fool was something was something different um so he sort of sits in between and and crops up um now and then sometimes you know in in relation to his horse or something like that uh but then the the most interesting record of him is probably when uh, when courtiers and uh Prominent people of the of the period um, refer to things he said, um, and that's you can find in in letters, but also in in published pamphlets and things like that, where where someone probably um, wants to sort of signal how close they are to to the court of of Henry VIII by quoting uh, his fool uh, and by saying, oh, you know, it's like that time when Will Summer said that thing, and so on. And these sayings are a bit... Uh, you know, they're, they're not what you'd expect. They're not just jokes or 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 an anecdotes or anything like that. They're usually in the form of gaffes. Th- times when he's uh, seems to have sort of put his foot in his mouth and, and said something that is sort of inadvertently funny. Um, and that is, of course, quite revealing of uh, what, what kind of fool
0: he was so what um would you say then having studied the records having looked at his posthumous reputation and 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 as you point out you know, the, the 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 fact that he is very much present today in all sorts of uh historical novels and 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 biographies that that examine the time what would you say Will Summer's legacy was in terms of his role at court and and, and and why he matters to us today.
1: Um he matters because uh, his type of of comedy, it, I mean, he the the, medi- the medieval or the renaissance fool was not a sort of prototype stand-up comedian. There, there, there is no sort of connection in that way. Um but but there is a different connection in that uh the type of comedy that he um symbolized and and that that continued off after him, um, is a sort of taste uh, for comedy that, that is um, inadvertent and that is uh, natural, um, a sort of penchant for comics who do not laugh at their own jokes, um, who um, uh, and, and, and a sort of um, uh, taste for deadpan comedy, you might say, or, or more subtle comedy. Uh, and I think this is is something that you can sort of trace back to this period, uh, because how how men like him are are described and and um, what was funny about them is 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 in in many times um, connected to this type of modern comedy, which uh, which you can find described
0: in in, in similar ways, really. Well, we appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Oh,
1: uh, <laughs> um, uh, I mean, I'm trying to sort of develop various projects, uh, both in, in the in the modern history and, and the Renaissance, but uh,
0: right now I'm uh, writing a book about dandies. Fascinating. It, yeah. it, do, do you find that there is a certain uh, level of, uh, of, a certain degree to which that, that, studying the courts in the 16th century helps to inform that in the in the more modern era in a way but i think the the most sort of uh the the
1: the parallel that, that is most apparent to me is that uh dandies were also seen as as fools uh in their in their time <laughs> uh, so that sort of attitude is is
0: quite uh quite revealing well yeah. i look forward to reading that book when it comes out and hopefully we can uh, have you on the back on the podcast and discuss it oh yes that would be great <laughs> Peter, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. Hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much.